0: So I got the thing that 99% of my peers wanted five to 10 years early. It was nice, don't get me wrong. More money is nice, but there was a gaping hole in my soul. Welcome to Creative Elements,
1: a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of Creative Elements. Thanks for tuning in and spending the next hour or so here with me. On May 2nd, 2019, I got an email from a good friend of mine and it was a forwarded email and it was a newsletter with a brief note that just read, you may dig this newsletter. That newsletter was Rad Reads, a beautifully formatted, emoji filled list of about a half dozen articles or so with a brief description for each. We're living in a moment right now when newsletters are all the rage. We're seeing more and more people start newsletters on Substack. Some of them are even paid. But in 2019, when I got this email, it was still pretty novel. We've talked about curation on the show a little bit recently, but it wasn't really that common then. Fast forward more than a year, and I'm starting to hear a lot more about K. He, the man behind Radreads. He's showing up in my Twitter feed. We begin talking back and forth a little bit on Twitter, and I see him collaborating with a lot of the other creators around me. Rad Reads is a weekly newsletter covering how to live an intentional life. Kay works to deconstruct our complicated relationship with status, time, and money. And today, his newsletter goes out to more than 20,000 readers, a number that I am personally envious of. And what's really unique about Kay's story is that he doesn't really have the background of the typical creator on this show. That wasn't his aspiration growing up, as we'll hear. In fact, when he was growing up, he thought success was earning a lot of money. And so Kay pursued the career that a lot of people do when they're trying to earn a lot of money.
0: I hopped on the treadmill of high performance achievement, status, and money. And the easiest treadmill to achieve that, that I've found, at least in that time, was working on Wall Street.
1: Kay spent much of his career at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, with more than $7 trillion in assets under management. But as you heard in the intro, even after finding financial success, Kay wasn't happy. So he took a leap of faith, and he left his Wall Street career behind to start writing
0: an email newsletter. That would have been five years ago, and I would have been 36 years old. And to set the stage, I I would have had one one one-year-old daughter, and now I have two it sounds like a pretty big risk to take. And
1: since then, Kay has been called Oprah for Millennials by CNN and the Wall Street Guru by Bloomberg. Besides his weekly newsletter, he's become a go-to expert for the productivity tool Notion. In this episode, we talk about shedding his golden handcuffs, the angel investment he made in himself, getting media attention, and why consistency has helped him find a new kind of success. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Klaus. And if you haven't joined our Creative Elements listeners group yet on Facebook, take a second right now, click the link in the show notes. We'd love to see you there. But without further ado, here's Kay.
0: But I want to just take you back briefly to 20 years before that, when I was a skinny... Magic the Gathering playing geek valedictorian who couldn't get a date and couldn't keep a pound of muscle on their, his body. Because that really sets the stage for 36, 35 year old K. Because, I mean, I assume there's a bunch of nerds listening to this podcast as well. And, you know, in 1996, it wasn't cool to be a nerd the way it is to be a nerd in 2020. So, what did we all long for at that time we longed for you know dates girlfriends boyfriends significant others acceptance into the cool group and i didn't have any of those so i had magic the gathering skills i could hack a little bit of html together I, the one cool thing i could do is i could land a kickflip flip on my skateboard but you know again you can't show that off that easily so, so i hatched up a plan you know 13 14 year old kid hatched up a plan and said I'm sick of not feeling accepted. I'm sick of feeling unloved. I'm sick of girls ignoring me. I'm going to make a lot of money. And I kicked that plan off in my teenage years. And it's kind of neurotic and crazy. And, you know, we could talk about whether it worked or it didn't work. But fast forward, I hopped on the treadmill of high performance, achievement, status, and money. And the easiest treadmill to achieve that, that I've found, at least in that time, was working on Wall Street. And so we could talk about all the tactics that, you know, 15 years, uh, I got a lot of cool promotions. I got to go to the Super Bowl. I got to fly in pri- like ski in private ski mountains and all that stuff. But then something happened. Every time I got a bonus, and I mean, these, some of these numbers were, I grew up as a lower middle, cl- like lower middle class immigrant family. I mean, some of the numbers were astronomical, where it's like in one year, I made what my dad made in a decade and like stuff like that. Crazy. And I feel good. Like, yeah, the king of the mountain. I'd go like splurge on, I don't know, like a $250 pair of diesel jeans. And then all my inner anxiety would come back, roaring back about 14 days later. And so I saw enough of that cycle transpire where. I thank my lucky stars that something inside of me said, hey, Kay, you know that playbook you hatched together when you were 13 years old? Have you ever considered that it might be flawed? And you asked me about, you know, 2015, 35 years old. Had a kid. I think you start to realize, there was a big question, is this it? And you got to remember the context of this. Like I was a managing director you know, for people who aren't familiar with that industry, that's like the highest non-executive. It's like an SVP in kind of tech land. It's kind of the highest title you could be. It's typically like 40, 45-year-old plus. I was, 10, I was almost a decade early. So I got the thing that 99% of my peers wanted five to 10 years early. It was nice. Don't get me wrong. More money is nice, makes life easier. You don't have to, you know, Stuart Butterfield has like, you don't care about where you eat, you don't care about how you fly, you don't care about what hotel you stay at. Like, you know, I had cleared those thresholds, but there was a gaping hole in my soul. And I didn't know what it was, but one thing I knew was like, I looked at people 10 years older than me and they had like X-5s and private school, boarding schools, all that thing. Their kids were going to Harvard and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't want that life. It's a good life, it's just not for me. But that leads to a much more Almost like a much more anxiety-inducing question, or it's just like, well, if that's not the life for me. Well, what is? And it's one thing to ask that question when you're, you know, 22 years old, living off of ramen. It's another thing to ask that question when you have a kid, your wife is a stay-at-home mom slash artist, and you've, you know, your parent, you know, your whole community, your tribe is like, dude, you knocked it out of the park. And so I had that unease. And it happened enough years, and we could talk about the tinkering that I had done, but it just happened enough that I'm like, you know what? I can't keep doing this. I need to know what else is out there. And so I just quit without a plan.
1: All right. We're going to get back to that point in, <laughs> in a second. But you mentioned this like cycle of anxiety that you're feeling when you get the bonuses or the promotions and things like that. How early into
0: your finance career did you start to notice that anxiety or that hole? I mean, I think I, that anxiety was that anxiety has been with me my whole life, and so I don't know if you could say that like I have like grind ground grinded the enamels off my teeth that like I need to change mouth guards every couple years. You know, I started losing my hair in my twenties. There was a phase where I was so stressed out that I that like I had alopecia. Like chunks of my hair would fall off of the side. Like that shit's not normal, man. And people actually see me now and they're like, you have, and I, I have a baby face, you could, you, you could see it, you know, but people see me now, they're like, you look 10 years younger. So I think it was always there. And my, my parents are very nervous types. You know, I, I didn't sleep well. I numbed myself with alcohol. So like, I don't think that I can point to one specific moment. It's almost like it was the only existence that I knew.
1: So you, you basically step off of this ledge. You say, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel this hole anymore. One, what were the reactions of the people around you? And two, how did you start figuring out what to do with this
0: life you have? Oh, man. The reactions. So this is a weird thing about, I would say, maybe Wall Street, but maybe just like corporate people, is that everyone talks about doing what I did. They blog about it, but only like 0.001%. Like so few people actually do it. And so I preface it by saying that it's a, it was a very unsettling time. It was exciting, but it was unsettling. Just the fear of like, did, did I make the wrong decision? Right? It is kind of in hindsight, I'm like, it's crazy to like walk without a plan. And we could talk, I, I'm being a little bit dramatic. Like there were... There were green, There were lots of green shoots, but there was no business idea or anything like that. So, how did people react? It was all over the map. I, th- I think that there, there was a there was a sliver of the population that's like, "Props to you. I would love to do that. I just don't have the guts to do it." Then there was another path, and again, maybe it's me making this up. Like this is me like projecting my own insecurities onto what they were saying, or what they were actually saying. You'll we'll never know. But that group was like, you're an idiot. Or, I mean, it got worse. An an old mentor of mine, I heard through the grapevine that said, he said, this guy had like hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's not like a peer that I was competing with. He goes, I've seen this story before. He's not going to cut it as an entrepreneur. He's going to spend way more money than he thinks he does. And mark my words, in five years, his wife will leave him. I'm like, dude, what did I ever do to hurt to piss wow. you off? Another instance I found out two years later after I quit, because I started blogging. We could talk about that. I started writing publicly. And, and, and that's the other thing about finance people. You know, they, they don't kiss and tell. They walk away and they just keep their mouths shut just to keep the option of coming back. And I was never bad-mouthing the industry, but I was just saying like, this is not for me. This is X, Y. And this other group of friends, good friends, they, there. I found out there was a group thread. Um, should we stage an intervention? Like, should we get him to stop saying these things publicly so that he keeps the option of going back? Thank God I didn't hear that right away. And so, again, were they jealous or was that a reinforcement of how unsettled I felt? We'll never know.
1: Something that I've told a lot of creators who are just getting started doing something, whether it's blogging, podcasting, whatever it is, they, uh, they go through this pretty quick cycle when they get started where you make the post you say, hey, I'm doing this thing. Subscribe here if you want to follow along. And they see this immediate bump of people in their network that are like, awesome, I'm following along. And they get excited. And then maybe they, even get, they stay consistent for a period of weeks or months. And over time, the actual attention they're getting is declining. And they're saying, why is this happening? And it's my opinion, and I'd love to hear your take on this, it's my opinion that there are a large number of people around us, close to us, who tune in when we start something new because mm-hmm. they want to see us fail. Mm. And when we don't do it, they stop paying attention.
0: Yeah. I, I think that there is definitely some schadenfreude going on because it, it was kind of like, again, th- I don't want this to sound arrogant, but it was kind of like, you're doing the thing that I will never do. So... By seeing you succeed, it hurts. And by seeing you fail, it validates my decision. I think it's 100% true. So there was definitely some of that. Again, I don't know how much, but I really, really tried to treat the whole thing with grace, where it was just like, it's not like I'm better than you. And if anything, it was like, I'm fucking scared, man. This I shit's like- scary. I might've made the wrong decision. You know, like. <laughs> And I think that there is this, this honesty to it. And I try to preserve that honesty to this day that was just like, yeah, this guy's just telling the truth. Like he's not sugarcoating both the good or the bad.
1: When we come back, Kay talks about the beginning of Rad Reads and the goals he set for himself after leaving his career on Wall Street right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link/j. That's u link r e e n.dot.link/slash/j, and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. When we left off, Kay had realized that he was not getting the fulfillment that he wanted out of his job on Wall Street. And despite his friends threatening to stage an intervention, he was about to strike out on his own. Kay says it was at this point that he sent his first unofficial edition of Rad Reads, kicking off a habit of consistency.
0: I was sitting on a beach. I still was employed January of 2015. And I had some time because I was on vacation. And I just I always love to read random Internet stuff. And I found five articles, Keith Rabois article, an Adam Grant article, Mark Marin interviewing uh, Louis C.K., shows you we were in a different time. And uh, I shared those five links just to 36 people in a BCC Gmail. And at the bottom of the sentence I wrote, I don't know, I'm on vacation, so I don't know when I'll have time to do this again. Famous last words, right? To, uh, to, I'm working right now on number 274. So that started, but I said, I hit send and you know, maybe eight of the 36 were like, This is awesome. I can't wait for the next one. And I'm like, uh, okay. Did you not read my disclaimer in the PS? But I had loved doing, I really enjoyed it. I was reading all that stuff anyway. And so there was just that extra step of just writing a little blurb. And this was before link blogging, this was before everyone had a newsletter. So I had that thing going. And people liked it. And it was probably, you know, six months into, into the newsletter, zero months into quitting. And people were just like liking it. And I think that was, that was something that was really good for me. Because I'm a very type A organized person. Like I need to always have something that I'm working on. And so it gave me a canvas. And that was the magical thing about the newsletter is like the newsletter became a canvas of like really like a creative canvas. And it just meandered through these different thematic areas, picking along little business ideas, revenue streams, like along the way. But to your point, like, when did I ever feel like it was clicking? It's probably not until I had my first product to sell, like a real thing to sell besides consulting and coaching. And that was like less than a year ago.
1: For clarity, when you said you were doing this for like six months before you quit, is Mm -hmm. that a weekly email like this that you're sending out?
0: I think it was getting close. To, I don't think it was like officially every week, but it was probably pretty close.:
1: Well, talk to me then about these first three years where presumably you're still publishing this mm-hmm. on some cadence, but you're saying you haven't really dialed in that this is the business yet. What were you doing to make ends meet, or what did you think you're working towards in those first three years?
0: -hmm.: So I was in a very unique position of having left Wall Street where I had... A bunch of savings. And most people would take the savings and you'd be like, I'm going to start this company. I took a slightly different tack. Again, I don't know if it's smart or, or ridiculous, but I basically made an angel investment in myself. And so my wife and I, we said, what's some amount, like angel investment, right? It, 99% chance it goes to zero and a 1% chance it's like a spectacular return. And so we basically said, How much of our savings are we willing to light on fire so that Kay can discover? And so we came up with that. It was, you know, depending on how we lived, it was, you know, somewhere between 18 months and two years. And so that was really the plan was to just light that money on fire and then see what happens. And it was a blessing because it really let me just do things and not have to monetize them immediately. And maybe a little bit of a curse. In that it, there was never the pressure. Like in my mind, I was very insecure as an entrepreneur. In my mind, I was just going to like play around for 18 months, do some cool creative projects, and then like go back to Wall Street or like I thought I would go get a tech job.
1: So you did have a plan B. Plan B was if this doesn't work within a year and a half, two years, this is the path.
0: Probably. I was like, I'll go work at a series C backed fintech company and be like their head of biz dev. And that's very presumptuous of me to say that. But that was kind of the loose back. And it was like, if that doesn't work, I'll just like go back head in hand to Wall Street and be like, guys, you were right. I was wrong. Um, take me back.
1: Was there like a, a threshold of success or like some sort of goal that you were working towards to know like, okay, this angel investment paid off? Was it a number? Was it like a number of subscribers? Like, how are you um, measuring whether this was going well?
0: Yeah. I think the first one was, can I, cover my living expenses, right? Because if I could generate enough revenue to cover my living expenses, then it was, it was house money, right? So I think that was really the thing that I was striving for at first. And that's the thing about these models. like. You know, I'm a Wall Street guy. So people are like, oh, did you model this? Did you think about like what the tax rate would be in, you know, six years later? And did you just think about like, like what was your assumption for the SP 500? You know, my life was, it wasn't complicated, but like it was a 36 year old's life where I had, you know, Roth IRAs and I had an investment portfolio and I owned some private companies and I had some interest bearing accounts. And so, like, it, you know, one thing that was very lucky was that in the, Year that I left, like the stock market has been on a tear. So like, even though I was like burning the money, like you know, I was making it. You know, you can't eat unrealized gains, but uh, but it was you know, it felt better. I always tell people if 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 I had quit and then there had been a bear market right away, I'd probably be employed. You know, at a at a, at a corporate employee. So the, so to answer your question, the goal was always to get to cash flow neutral. So then I could, you know, I was playing with house money at that point. The other thing that I would say with just in the spirit of transparency was that I had I had saved up some a decent amount of money where like I felt good about like saving for my kids' college and all that. Like I obviously I wanted to grow my wealth, but like I I had I had made some good adult decisions so that like if I could be cash flow neutral, I could stay that way for a while. So that's and I think that's a, a unique situation relative to maybe others who listen to your podcast.
1: What else in that first 3 years of publishing Rad Reads stands out as milestone moments mm. that you really learned something or or felt like okay this is going to work.
0: Mm. There were a few. There were some that 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 had more promise on the surface and you know when you peeled back the onion they were not as promising and there were others that didn't look as promising on the surface and turned out to be extremely promising. So I would say the first, the first milestone happened quite early, probably about a year after I quit, or not even, nine months after I quit. Someone in my audience who I knew, a business acquaintance, he said, I don't know what you're doing, but it's really cool. Can we pay you to come talk to our employees about how to be happy? It's like, uh, okay, okay. Uh, it's not really how it works, but yes, you can. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. <laughs> uh, and so that, that's basically how I started coaching. I became a happiness coach for a financial services company based on two variables. The person liked me from before, but we weren't friends. The second is that I was producing a, a canon of work that showed my ideas, my way of thinking. And so that was the first step where I'm like, right? That Because I started to make money, so it started to push out the angel investment, right? When the angel investment looked like 18 months, now it looked like two and a half years because of that income that was offsetting Mm -hmm. the, the burn. So that was the first milestone, promising at the surface, promising behind the scenes. The second would be lumped into like press. And so there was a TEDx talk and then two journalist pieces, CNN and Bloomberg. They all happen like within six months of one another. Those are very important. The CNN one, I think CNN and Bloomberg, the TEDx turned to be a bit of a wash. I think it was before I realized that like you and I could start a TEDx series tomorrow. But obviously, the CNN and the Bloomberg were really, really good. CNN got way more exposure than Bloomberg because it's much broader. But I mean, I think those two pieces took my newsletter from 1,000 subscribers to 10,000 in like three months.
1: Where did they come from? How did you get CNN and Bloomberg to hear your story and want to tell it?
0: Yeah, so that's, again, I mean, the, the, the newsletter has been the, my vehicle for serendipity. Very straightforward. CNN was a, uh, was a money, CNN money, now called business reporter. And the shrewd business reporters know that it's actually quite rare for someone to leave Wall Street and want to give an interview, like open book. And I think she just was intrigued by my story. She liked the newsletter. And so she, I just thought it was just going to be like some little like back page piece. And again, better to be lucky than to be smart. They, they ran it on the 30th New Year's Eve. And, and because it was a three-day weekend, they kept it on the front page for three days because no one was ranking wow. news stories. Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, that piece itself probably got like a million page views.
1: Did they approach you or did you They approach me.
0: I've never pitched journalists explicitly.
1: But why not? You know, if, if, this, if this worked, mm-hmm. why aren't you, why aren't I, why aren't we just like pitching journalists constantly?
0: A few reasons. I think the obvious, let's go from most obvious to least obvious. The most obvious is imposter syndrome. Which is like, who the F was K he with his, you know, at the time, 1000 person audience to reach out to a journalist? I think that's the first one. I still struggle to call myself a writer, even though I write three hours every day for the past six years because I'm a computer science major. I'm a finance guy. Identities are hard to shed. I think the second one is that if you're not from the world of comms and marketing, I don't think you realize how the game is played. I would remember like, reading Us Weekly or seeing my wife read, you know, Vogue or whatever. And you'd see this like, here is, I'm dating myself, here's Misha Barden, you know, wearing, you know, blah, 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 Tory Burch sandals. And I'd be like, oh yeah, like, you know, the best ideas, the best shoes rise to the top. If you're not from the world of marketing, branding, and PR, you just don't know that. Or maybe I was just living under a rock. And so I'm like, yes, like Tory Birch does have the best sandals. So that's why Misha Barton ran it. I didn't know that Tory Birch sends hundreds of pairs of free sandals to every freaking celebrity in the world and then sells the paparazzi to go find them when they're wearing them.
1: I had no idea. Not to mention even you know, journalists and reporters in general, they do great work, but as time has gone on, they are so pressured to put out so much content Mm -hmm. that they can't be as stringent on what is newsworthy versus what is not when they have to publish five articles today. It's crazy.
0: Totally. Totally. And I think that I was like, for someone who comes from finance, I should probably know this well, but like, I think I was naive about the influence of money and power behind Everything, right? Like, look, look at the food pyramid, right? The food pyramid turned out to be a piece of junk because of the money of the food lobby, right? Um, so, I, I think, like, I was naive about that. I, so, that's one approach, one reason, another reason. And I think with that comes, like, knowing how to pitch. Like, there's a whole skill to that, like, knowing how to pitch, knowing how to frame stories, right? Again, you and I have learned way more complicated stuff than that. But again, it, you don't, it's, it was definitely an unknown unknown. And then I think there's a third part, which kind of leads into you know, one of my, my personal frameworks, which is this $10,000 work framework, which is high leverage, high skill activities. Right? Those, that's $10,000 an hour work. And on the other end of the spectrum is low leverage, low skill. I'm really good at that stuff. That's like inbox zero and replying to your tweets and things like that.
1: Can you define leverage?
0: Yes. So leverage is the output happens when you don't have to do anything. You the business owner, you the creator. So, good example. I trained my team really well when I was on BlackRock. When I went on my honeymoon, I did the unthinkable that you do in finance. I didn't turn on my Blackberry once. You turned off the
1: Blackberry. I was going to say
0: Blackberry kept it off. <laughs> the entire honeymoon. No no one at my level or, or even junior, no one does that but I had the fate in my team because I trained them so well. So training people is a lot of $10,000 an hour work. And so what was the leverage? The leverage was they could do all my work while I was gone. Another, another example of leverage, look at, look at this. I mean, a lot of creators will relate to this. How many people have pounded their head across their laptop, A-B testing forms, to take that conversion rate from 3.67 to 3.82? Totally. Or you could cultivate relationships with journalists. (laughs) You won't get on CNN. That's not a guarantee. But you could get on, you know, baby CNN, like, uh, I don't know, whatever is like, if CNN is number one, it's not. But you could get on, you know, number 100 with a little bit of planning. It's not going to happen right away. And so that gets to that. That 10K work, right? So, 10, you know, I reply to your tweet. I do a nice little clever tweet storm and I get a few things. I get a few new followers. Like, I get the dopamines pumping through my veins, man. I'm on top of the world. Yes. I email a journalist and be like, hey, I'm Kay. I saw, I like the article you wrote about coaching. I'm a coach. If you ever need me, you know, like if you ever want to, want to talk, here's my email. No response. I'd be better off. For every tweet storm I do, I'd be better off writing that second email. Totally. For the rest of my life. <laughs> there's, never a, a, there's never a moment where that tweet storm is a better decision.
1: After a quick break, Kay breaks down what he would do differently if he were starting today from scratch. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Kay told us that it took him three years to feel like things were really starting to click into place and the more creators that I have on this show, the more I hear that timeframe of three years. So I asked Kay if he could start over today, what advice he'd give to his younger self to compress that timeline even further.
0: Understand marketing, branding, copywriting, partnerships, basically find the leverage in your work, right? I think mean, find the leverage is like the partnerships and press type strategies, and then the marketing is just like, I was on ConvertKit writing an email to my list and I just have three, I have amazing content. I, I did, I've been doing this hour bootcamp every day and I have three hours of the replays. And I'm like sitting down to write this subject line. I'm like three hours of bootcamp replays. No one's gonna fucking click that. Like that's <laughs> crap, that's garbage. I don't wanna read that. And so I spent like 20 minutes coming up with a headline. Let me, let me know what you think. Click to the screen. I love this workshopping. What's the difference between effectiveness and efficiency? That was the headline. That,
1: that's the headline. Yeah, I like it. I think you might even not even you might not
0: even need the word what's. Oh yeah, the di- oh yeah, because I like questions, but but it does make it clunkier.
1: And I've also realized that having something that's like four or five words, so that it fits on one line on a cell yeah. phone screen, yeah, does yeah. really well.
0: I'm I'm doing it. Maybe IAB <laughs> test them and we can share the results. <laughs> there you go. But but again. For three years, I wrote three hours of videos. Like the first 100 episodes of Rad Reads was like Rad Reads one, Rad Reads two, Rad Reads three. Like, so if I just understood like that little subtlety that, like, you know, it's positioning, right? It's framing. Like, if I understood those things, that would have been super powerful. The other thing is, and again, it's a little bit of a luxury, but. I've hired a lot of coaches and very tactical coaches, copywriting coach, SEO coach. I wish I just hired hired those people early. I had this thing, and we could talk about this emotional side where, like, if you haven't suffered, like, you have to suffer through it for it to be worthwhile. Where I do believe, like, I want to get my hands dirty so I know the right person to hire and the right questions to ask. So I would, I think I probably should. Like if, if like you need to go from zero to 100 on SEO, I think I should get myself to 20 out of 100 and then make a high a consulting hire or coaching hire. I would get to like 65 and then make mm. that hire. And that 45 is like a lot of wasted time and it's just not the best use of your time. And you, there's just a lot of fucking around in that. Like not a lot of fucking around, but just you're just like chasing your own tail for a lot of that time. I could have just shortened the, li- the timelines.
1: What types of lessons have you learned from trying other content? Like you've been wildly consistent with Rad Reads the Newsletter. Mm -hmm. You've also, you did a year of podcasting. Mm -hmm. I was looking at your YouTube channel before this, which I didn't know existed. And like Mm -hmm. you have a significant number of YouTube subscribers there. So like, how are you thinking about these different
0: mediums and Mm -hmm. what did you try? How did it go? So funny story about the YouTube subscribers. I think I have like 4,500 3,500 of them came from being on Ali Abdal's YouTube channel. Hmm. So again, the power of partnership, right? I shouldn't be doing that tweet storm. I should be finding all the Ali Abdals and positioning myself to get, get on their channels. And again, that's not even the way to do it. You become friends and then the opportunity comes up naturally, right. organically. How do I pick the medium? So I have uh, dabbled with a lot of mediums. I did, you don't even know this. I did... Uh, I think a year of daily Snapchat stories. Whoa, okay, a year. What up, snappers? Uh, hope you guys are doing well. Finally getting a little workout in. This one's gonna be spicy, uh, recovering from jet lag and finally in a routine. A tour of the property, that's the fitness center. Get my little swerve on and back to the pool where Lisa's hanging. <laughs> little homie up there, chilling. That's how I got Oprah for millennials. The, the, I'm not even a millennial, dude, I'm 41. But people knew me about this like weird old guy, like really backwards on Snapchat, just like not getting how the, the language and the game works. But I was trying, I was trying so hard, doing these little stories every day for a year. So I did a lot of one year experiments. I did a podcast for a year. I did Instagram st- stories for maybe like eight months or so. YouTube, I've just dabbled. So my strategy has been a few. Always follow the gravitational pull. And so if you're feeling a pull, it just means like your, your energy's in it. And again, know why you're doing it. But if like, like I, my, my philosophy to entrepreneurship is like follow the fun. If it's not fun, stop doing it. And yes, there's ops and all that. But like, if it's not fun, like 90% of the time, stop doing it. That's why I stopped the podcast. It just stopped becoming fun. And so the other thing I've learned that I would share with creators is Pick one and get really good at it. Dabble with a second. So my pick one is email. I'm good at email. I like it. It works for me. And my dabble right now is Twitter. I think that I'm going to play a little bit more. I also think about your strengths. I'm a, I'm a good writer. I'm not a good video producer. I have no fucking clue how to edit a video. Podcasting, I'm okay at. Like, Stick with words, dude. You're good at words. Twitter isn't very natural. But again, and this, is a, this will send us on a side tangent, I do see the promise. And the thing that excites me about YouTube, which is what I like about SEO, and what I like about email to a lesser extent, is that there's an, actually email doesn't have this. YouTube and SEO have a natural discovery engine. Podcasting yeah. and Twitter do not have a natural podcasting engine. And I am the kind of person that, like, I want to, you know, get on to use baseball. I just want to get on first base a lot. And then I'll win the game that I'm playing for myself by getting on first base a lot. I feel like Twitter is much more of a hits It's the VC model. And I'm much more of the fast tortoise where it just like show up, put in the reps, you know, and that's why SEOs have worked like it's been a really good strategy for me.
1: Wait, what's a fast tortoise?
0: A fast tortoise is if you expand over horizon, it's the tortoise that just keeps taking one step, one step on step. And then you've got like the hair that sprints, but then tires themselves out. And so I'm the fast, if you extend the window, the horizon, I'm the fast tortoise. It might look like locally, I'm going really slow, but globally, when you look at the long game, I'm winning the race.
1: Take me now to whatever happened in year three where you felt like, okay, I've found something.
0: So again, it, it, I don't want your audience to think that there were these binary switches. I think that coaching ended up becoming a, a pretty lucrative revenue stream. And again, I could have, I if I just went all in on coaching, could have not only covered my burn, but created a very nice life. It's, just not, it's not something that I wanted to do 100% of my time. I dabbled with speaking. I think I was a little too early in my career where I I wasn't a good storyteller. And then I just kind of, you need a book to be a speaker. And I just wasn't interested in writing a book at the moment. So coaching really kind of took the pressure off, but I never really monetized anything digitally. And so again, it happened accidentally. It was just the serendipity of it. So a year and a half ago, Notion gets its like kind of V2 upgrade. Notion is a productivity app for those who don't know. It's like, a, it's like if Trello, Google Docs, and Airtable had a, a love child. And this app is really like everything I personally ever wanted in an app because like, it's like uh, powerful enough to do a lot of things, but simple enough that you don't need to code and just beautiful design, like just great user experience. So I'm just like f- smitten with this app. Solves a lot of my own pain points. And I just start tweeting about it, writing about it. And again, this like really lucky coincidence happened. Right when that's happening, there's this little startup that comes out called Loom. And Loom, for those of you who don't know, it's like the easiest way to record your screen. It like literally puts the link on your clipboard after you're done and you just drop it in. It expands to a beautiful social card. It's clean. It works all the time. Loom came out. And so what started to happen is just started creating these mini tutorials on Notion, how I was using Notion. Using Loom. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm going to teach you how to use the Notion Web Clipper. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to grab web pages, organize them into a table, which is a spreadsheet. Technically, it's a database, but think about it as a spreadsheet. And then we're going to modify the data to show it in different ways so that um, we can share it with others. And what happened is, was, was a few things. People, I just became an expert in Notion, not for any like, skill of mine, just timing, right? I, was, I just used it the most in the shortest period of time and did it publicly. So that was one, one thing. The second thing is that the use cases of Notion aligned with a lot of the things that I write about. It's like organization, prioritization, managing your life, building in public, no code, they like kind of jived. And then the third thing is I had this kind of pent up demand from my audience because I never once asked them for money in five years. And at that point I had you know 15,000 readers with a 50% open rate. So like people cared and I'd never asked them for any. So I just flipped the switch and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to give it a shot. I got some good mentors. Tiago Forte is a big mentor and inspiration of mine. And I just went for it. I'm like, Hey, who wants this notion cohort one, September of last year, I think it was 20 people at 500 bucks a pop, all live cohort based. I've only done cohort based courses and just rinse, lather and repeat, you know, at the time of this recording, I'm preparing the launch for number five. I think we might clear 150 students, maybe 200. At that point, like 500 students will have been through the course. So that's how it started.
1: So now do you think of yourself as a course creator? Like, is that where you're putting the bulk of your effort? Or is that, like, how do you think about your Mm. business model now?
0: I think of it a few ways. One is I love teaching. And that might sound weird, but I was talking to an old colleague of mine, and they said, you know, it might seem so weird what you're doing now. You're this kind of like online personality. But I remember in 2010, you got 10 analysts around the table. You whipped out your iPad, and over lunch, you taught us all how to use OmniFocus and what GTD was. And so they're like, it's both crazy what you're doing, and it's totally on brand. It totally makes sense. And so I love the teaching side of thing. And if you can think of, if you look at like my portfolio of activities, coaching, even the way I write is it's not teaching per se, but it's a lot of like explaining and talking through. So I love teaching. So that's going to be a part of what I do. I love the internet and I love just all the mediums and how they merge together through visually and sensorily, and with words and with graphics and colors. And I'd like to be a pioneer in education on that, not in like a Steve Jobsian type, like people will know me to have reinvented, but like I think I have the toolkit and the purview to do something really kind of weird and cool along that vein. The biggest one. Is that like in my boot camp today? Every, every boot camp in the middle of the presentation, I do a pop up hip hop quiz because that's fun. <laughs> Today's question What's the most popular Wu Tang song, not by Wu Tang, by an individual song member? You don't have to answer it. But that like, I have no idea.
1: Tell me though, I want to know.
0: The answer it's a Wu Tang, um, Method Man and Mary J. Blige. You're all I need. So, anyway. That's so much more fun than like the crotchety professor that like doesn't know how to turn on Zoom, right? And so I would love to mash up all of those experiences together.
1: Do you think of yourself as a writer now?
0: I do, I'm not like, I didn't jump through the screen to tell you yes. I, <laughs> I had to think about it. I'm just comfortable with not having identities, right? That's why when you ask me the course creator question, I'm just like, that might be the output of what I do. I think I'm more like a like some sweet internet sorcerer that has this cauldron of just bubbly stuff in it and just like you're just not sure what's going to come out of it. That's kind of like how I view myself. So, 5 years into this,
1: what's the hardest part? What should people be prepared for if they're jumping off the ledge similar to what you did with BlackRock?
0: Funny, I tweeted this the other day and I didn't think it would get much response, but the life of a solopreneur. Every morning you wake up, you define the list of 100 things you do. You pick two because it's just you and those are the only two you could do if you're lucky. You do them, then you, rev- you check them and you review them and you make sure like all the ops behind it are working. And then you feel really crappy about yourself for the, the 98 that you didn't do. And then you add another 10. <laughs> exactly. And that's like... That's the story of solopreneurship. And so I guess I would say I love what I do. I feel so blessed. I've had a set of unique circumstances, and luck has found me in many ways, and I've put myself out there. But I don't want it to get lost. And again, I don't want this to be viewed as a brag, but every day for the past five and a half years... I have done that. I have defined my work, executed it, reviewed it, and then felt bad about a big chunk that I couldn't get to. And there are moments when I'm like, I just wish I could like, stare at my screen hungover and manage my fantasy football team. Or I just wish like, someone would tell me what to do. Like, I, I, I genuinely miss, that's why I hire so many coaches, I actually genuinely miss having someone tell me what to do. Amazing. Uh, but is it worth it? Oh my god it's worth it every i i would say i never want to retire because i feel retired and that's the that's the paradox of it like there's what i just said and i would opt into that life every day
1: this was a really fun episode to record because even though this is only the second time that kay and i have spoken live on video we have such similar views and we've had such a similar experience writing online that it feels like we've known each other forever. Kay didn't get started much sooner than you can get started right now. And as he told us, and as we hear a lot, it'll take two to three years for things to feel like they're really starting to click. But that's all the more reason to get started today. If you wanna learn more about Rad Reads or Kay's Notion courses, visit radreads.co and links to that are in the show notes. Thanks to Kay for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.